Hello and welcome to Sons of Thunder, the podcast where three mates discuss the meaning of life and why Noki has a silent G and two C's. Oh yeah, we deal with the big issues. My name is Sam Clear and I'm a full-time Catholic speaker and with a background in ridiculous adventure. Joining me, the other two-thirds of Sons of Thunder are Marty. G'day, Sam. G'day, Marty. How are you? Yeah, really well. Do you want to say anything about yourself? Who are you? Um, I am a engineer who works in the mining industry. Um, uh, As you know, Sam, because we both studied engineering together um, and the the difference when we both got our degrees is I got a job. <laughs> Which he only brings up every <laughs> second week. Yeah, we studied mechanical engineering together. But also in the room with us in the studio is Father Dave Callahan. Good morning. Good morning. Morning, Father. How was your drive from Canberra? It was not that bad. A little bit foggy. A few times I couldn't quite see the car that was in front of me, but we survived. <laughs> <laughs> When you say we, well, I mean the car, the car in front. You and <laughs> and the other big truck that was nearby. Uh, <laughs> Everyone got home safely. Right. Now, how many years have we known each other? Oh, go back about two thousand five. Two thousand five, I think. Yeah. And Marty back to nineteen ninety nine. Oh yeah, high high nineties. Ninety nine, I think. So that's like, is that twenty years? I think so. I actually met Marty before I met you. Yeah. So there. There you go. Wow. Doing youth ministry. Yeah. In those days. He dropped around to our house one That's time. That's right. Youth mission team. Yeah. Yeah. Youth mission team. And so, Father Dave, I knew you when you were a seminarian. <clears throat> yes. And we used to play tennis and cricket and vent our anger against balls. Pretty much. Generally. Yeah. Now, I should explain where the name Sons of Thunder came from. Uh, we were, we decided, it was actually Marty, it was your call to actually, before you take a drink, it was your call to put this podcast together. You thought that it was worthwhile actually recording our conversations because you and I have a phone call conversation every Sunday. Father Dave, you're pretty much the go-to for anything I'm struggling with and why is it so and what can we do about it? And Marty, your call to actually record some of these conversations on difficult subjects. Yeah, just thought, you know, other people could benefit from our ignorance as well. <laughs> so, Marty, it was your mum who, a number of years ago, back in, say, 99, 2000, thereabouts, who was laughing in your kitchen about Mark chapter 3, where Jesus gives the nickname to James and John as the sons of thunder. And your mum was laughing at, did Jesus mean that James and John were tremendously thunderous or was Jesus implying that their mother was thunderous and was they cantankerous. were cantankerous? Uh, the sons of thunder. Uh, that that concept appealed to my mother. <laughs> well, it's interesting because later on we do see that James and John are quite thunderous. It's uh, in Luke chapter nine where Jesus and the disciples are on their way to Jerusalem and they are refused accommodation in one of the villages. And upon refusing, being refused accommodation, it is James and John who turn to Jesus and say, Lord, shall we call down fire upon this town? And Jesus basically subdues them, rebukes them. Yeah, settle down. On. We've been but, refused accommodation. Lord, they have offended you. Shall we call down fire on them right now? But they must have, they must have got it from somewhere. So it's either, it's either Zebedee or the mother. Zebedee being the dad. Yeah. Yeah. But Father Dave, when we put the name to you, you had a different take on it. I, I just thought, well, they, they were the ones who were present at all the great revelations of who Christ was. You know, so at the Transfiguration, they were there at the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, so they were sort of privileged to witness the mystery. So in terms of when you suggested it as a topic for the title for the podcast, I thought, well, if we're trying to break open the mystery, then what better people to lead us there than James and John? Of course, the third one there was Peter. The fact that you're a priest, you can take on the role of Peter. I Marty, nice. You <laughs> who do you want to be? Well, the, the other choices are, you know, obviously James and John, the first, the first apostle to be martyred, and the and the last apostle who, the only one who wasn't martyred. So old, died old. I'll go James. Okay, I'm in for the long haul. <laughs> Just highly unlikely, considering my track record with injuries. <laughs> 
So I want to go back, Marty, right back to 1999. We had just met for the very first time, and the day after meeting each other, we decided to actually run from Hobart up to the top of Mount Wellington. For anyone who hasn't been to Hobart, it's a very tall mountain. You've been there Father Dave, haven't you? Funny story, I'll explain at the end. <laughs> so I heard about your run a few months later when I was in Hobart and decided to walk the same journey. Wow. How long did it take you? I forget. We did an hour and a 45. <laughs> you were running, I was walking. Anyway, keep going. Tell yeah, your so, so we, we ran. I mean, we didn't know each other. We only just met the day before. We actually didn't know each other at all. We No. But, yeah. This is the first time we really had a proper chat, which is an odd thing to do for two guys who just met. Long chat. Long mm. chat. And we ended up sharing our faith journey while running, which makes it even more impressive because at the moment I couldn't even walk up Mount Wellington. <laughs> and yet we ran up at hour 45 and shared our testimony as we went. Um, and to a degree, Marty, I have to say you were the first guy who actually taught me what it was to be Catholic. Father Dave, you were the guy who taught me how to do it properly. <laughs> that was the, the general so background. So I should declare here that that wasn't really my fault because as we were running up, I remember this really clearly as we were running up Mount Wellington and I had this uh, I had this urge inside me saying you need to invite this guy to a Bible study that was going on that I had personally, I was, had no intention of going to it and, and, and the Lord was saying you need to invite this guy and I was saying but I'm not going, how's that going to work? Said, no, no, you need to invite this guy. Said, I just am really uncomfortable doing that. Said, no, no, you need to invite this guy. Um, and this feeling as we ran over, you know, best part of two hours has got bigger and bigger and bigger inside of me to the point where my uh, refusal to uh, cooperate uh, was really being compromised <laughs> until I realised, like, the, the choice here is I could... I could actually do what I'm being asked to and invite you to this Bible study or I can continue not doing so and then invite you in a few minutes because it's not going to get any smaller and it's not going to get any easier until finally I agreed and, and said, hey, Sam, there's a um, this little Bible study thing um, on the weekend. You know, you might, I don't know, you might, you might not. I think I said no. I said yes eventually. Mm. I'm pretty sure on the mountain I said, oh, I'll see. Mm. And then didn't. And then did. And then eventually turned up and I wasn't there. And you weren't there, <laughs> which you didn't tell me. You failed to tell me that. Well, you know. You were upstairs doing the assignment that I should have been doing. <laughs> which I've got to say, I'm very thankful that you gave me the answers to that assignment instead. So I went to a Bible study for the first time in my life and you did the assignment and gave me the answers. Is that why he got the job and you didn't? Pretty much. Well, I know. Well, I've got a job now as a full-time Catholic speaker, so I got my job. He got his. As an engineer. As an engineer. Yeah. Yeah. Through the traditional pathways. <laughs> <laughs> I never knew, Father Dave, that you then... We've been on the same journey for roughly the same amount of time then. Well, yeah. Strange thing, because I, I was visiting Hobart doing some youth ministry stuff. Not long. I don't, I don't know what, when it was you guys did that run, but... We were there in July, I think, um, and the people we were staying with mentioned how there was these two guys, and they just did this crazy run just a few weeks ago. Oh wow, we're famous! And I was like, I really want to go climb that mountain. Which way did they go? And he described it, and so I went and walked this thing. And it was only years later I heard you tell this story. I'm like, you're the two guys. You're the crazy guys. Well, on, yes. I remember. I remember you guys coming to Hobart. I met you, but I didn't know that you were part of that group. Okay. No, no, I don't even know you either. So yeah, we're equal. <laughs> oh, nice. It's the start of a beautiful friendship, isn't it? <laughs> All the coincidences. There you go. So a number of years later, I went to Father Dave and said, I'm really quite upset with the disunity of the church. I had learnt, I'd seen a lot of things. Now, I don't mean disunity in the sense of we're just not getting along. I mean things like... Marty, do you remember in engineering, there was a guy called Jez who used to walk around to everyone asking people, do you know Jesus? And he asked me one day, do you know Jesus? And I said, yes. He said, oh, really? He was quite excited because an engineering student had actually replied to him nicely and with a yes. And he asked me, where do you go to church? And I said, oh, I'll go to the Catholic church down the road. And he said, well, have you ever considered becoming Christian? I said, I am. 
He said, ah, you're Catholic, therefore you're not. And so over the next few months, he proceeded to try and evangelize me. But actually, all he did was make me more Catholic because he forced me to look at questions I'd never considered. And we had a, a priest, Father John Wall, God rest his soul, who was very happy to actually have me coming to ask questions. And your dinner table, so your mum and dad, yeah. I used to pepper them with questions. Am I still the only non-family member to have a napkin? Uh, you got a napkin and I think the... Um, you got the, a brother-in-law. My brother-in-law and my wife and my other sister's-in-law. So you're the only non... Family. You're the only person who hasn't married into the family who got a serviette, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. But that, the, the conversations were fantastic around the dinner table. I was allowed to ask really deep questions and... The questions that Jasmine was putting to me really did force me to look at what I believed and, and what the Bible taught. And then obviously invited me to the, the Bible study. And in the end, this guy stopped trying to evangelize me and just handed me the notes from his church, which were all printed out. And it was Fight Club Evangelizing Catholics. Now, all the stuff written in this, if it was true, then the Catholic Church, by all means, was awful. But it wasn't true. This wasn't what the Catholic Church taught. Um, there were some things that were slightly true, but they were way out of context. Uh, there was a lack of understanding or explanation with it. So on one particular occasion, this guy sent me an email, and when I opened it up, it was pornography. And I got the Bronx cheer from the other engineering guys in the lab. And I was a bit embarrassed. I shut it down. I went and confronted him, and I said, hang on, why did you send me that? You don't think I'm Christian because I'm Catholic, but you send me pornography. I said, don't you have any concept of sin? He said, oh, that's where your Catholics are wrong. He said, if you'd ever read, read your Bible properly, you would have read that once you accept Jesus into your life, you're dead to sin. He said, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I can't sin. That's what the Bible says. And so that's wow. an alarm bells going. What does the Bible actually say? What do other churches actually teach? What's going on here? And that sent me down a path to wanting to know what was going on and, and what he's taught as truth and does truth matter. And then over the years to come, uh, serving on youth mission team, just it seemed like it got worse and worse. And even within the Catholic Church, uh, what's purported to be truth is <laughs> different from one place to the next. And there's a Pentecostal church in the United States that has Pol Pot, Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin in their stained glass window because they believe that they are in heaven too, because Jesus died once for all. So all go to heaven. Um, and I was both confused by this, but also frustrated that in John 17, Jesus prayed for the complete unity of the church. And he gives a reason why in, in 1723, which is that the, the world would see through our unity, God's love, that the father has loved the son. He loves us as he's loved the son. And so working in evangelization at the time, I thought that in of itself is probably our greatest evangelization tool is our unity in truth and in love and working towards that. And the church is fractured. And, and I figured there was nothing I could do to fix this. But in the end, looking at a world map, I decided, well, I remember this. there you is one bit I can do. Turned up at our kitchen one day and go with a world map and say, I'm going to walk around the world praying for Christian unity. And me and my brother said, you're nuts. Yeah, but that's pretty normal. <laughs> Even nutser than usual. You had staying with you a priest from Tanzania. Ah, Father Eusebius. Father Eusebius. Yeah. And he sat down with me. He took it seriously. <laughs> because I actually, I wanted to go through Africa at that point. I want to start in South America, walk all the way up across the you, Bering you can't, Strait. You frozen. can't walk from South America to Africa. You can. You've got to wait for the Bering Strait in between Alaska and Russia to freeze. Oh. And you can. See, Father Dave was nodding his head. He's looked at it. Because I remember telling you that and every, I read about someone doing it. And everyone else listening is agreeing with me. You're nuts. <laughs> <laughs> was this the guy that got sent home? I can't remember what happened to him. But, uh, but it, it was... It was just before you told me about it, I'd read this article about a guy who'd started in South America and uh, he was trying to get through North America as fast as he could so that he could get there by the time it was frozen. 
So I was suggesting that it was possible. Yeah, this was, I remember this guy, he was, I think, a, a soldier. He was discharged from the army and in Argentina and was decided he was going to walk home. Uh, but he made it all the way through South and Central America, through North America, made it across the Bay Ring Strait, made it into Russia, had the wrong documents, and they flew him home. To Argentina? <laughs> no, no, back to England. <laughs> oh, OK. So the last leg was done in a plane. Well, the, the last half. So maybe it was you that put the thought in my the mind then. If you've told me before... I've probably put many Whoa. stupid thoughts in your mind over the years. Indeed. It's like Inception. <laughs> How deep does it go? So in the end, looking at a world map, decided I'd, I'd like to walk around the world. And Father Eusebius helped me to realise that walking across Africa in 2005, sorry, 2006 to 2008, particularly with the Sudan falling apart, Egypt wasn't great, Ethiopia and Eritrea were awful. It was all, the Congo was going up. It just, it was awful. And I'm supposed to walk through single white guy, Six foot five, red backpack. At least you're big. I don't think the lions care. <laughs> I'm a big target from a distance. They'll hit me easier with the, uh, I'm talking about the snipers now, not the lions. Um, they're just civil war everywhere. Mm. Um, and Father Eusebius convinced me that Africa was a no-go zone. And then you, Marty, said, you actually did come to the table and said, if you're walking around the world praying for unity, surely you should go through Rome. Because you had this sketch where you just walked like across France or the top of Italy or something, the no, last no. bit. I came down through uh, Turkey, I think. So from Russia down to Turkey, down through the Middle East, through Jordan and into Egypt. Ah, yeah, I do remember. I remember saying you got to go. Why would you go to? It's a bit like that road trip we did a few years ago, a decade ago, when we were going in the United States and said if we if we're driving through um, Nevada, we've got to stay in Las Vegas. So it's a bit like that. If, you, if you're walking around a world for unity, you've got to go to Rome. <laughs> Which, ironically, what do you remember about Las Vegas, Marty? I remember being very tired after my long-haul flight. Your best sleep you'd best, had in best, a long time. Best sleep in America because I, I went to bed early. <laughs> we went and saw the fountain, the huge fountain that plays to music, and then I think everyone was in Bellagio. bed. Yeah, Bellagio. Yeah, in bed by eight. In bed by Las eight. Las Vegas, and the city that never sleeps. We were up by dawn. and to, we To drive to the Hoover Dam. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, pathetic. <laughs> pathetic. Uh, no, no, no. We, I think we gave Las Vegas what it deserved, which yeah. was a very quick drive-through. Hence, <laughs> <laughs> we're still here today. So eventually the walk did actually materialise. Um, I decided to sell everything. Um, Father Dave, you and I share a favourite saint. Francis Assisi. Mm. Mm. And I think for the same reasons. Completely sold out for God. Mm. And my, my favourite saint's Mary. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. I'm not playing cards here, mate. <laughs> um, and I'd always admired that St. Francis was willing to get rid of all his possessions, all his riches, to pursue Christ, to be closer to Christ. And, and I remember as a teenager thinking, I wouldn't even be able to get rid of my cricket bat. I'd be devastated if I lost my cricket bat. And then do finally, you, do you there still, was, do you, I've still do got you, my cricket bat. All right, just checking. Yeah. <laughs> you got rid of most things. <laughs> it needs do a new, you consider it needs yourself a, a grown-up? <laughs> no. I decided that I was, I was going to sell everything. Um, St. Catherine of Siena said that the, our vocation in life is where our great passion and the world's great need collide or intersect. And this was a moment where my great passion, adventure... So I grew up in central Tassie and loved going up mountains. Evident by our first meeting, Marty. We, it's what you do. We ran up a mountain. And Father Dave, we climbed a mountain earlier this year, which was awful. 35 degrees Celsius. It wasn't your it, fault, It, it was a beautiful Dave. mountain. The, I mean, the experience was probably not that great, but it was, it's still a good mountain. Correct. It looks great on film. <laughs> it was just awful being there. Good company. Um, <laughs> so I decided to, to sell everything, um, sold my Land Rover Discovery and then had a, because Father Dave, you and I lived only a few blocks from each other and we, we toted this idea around mm. of the walk. Yep. Um, and a lot of people would know that I did the walk around the world. What they don't know is that Father Dave 
who at the time was Deacon Dave. Well, you were ordained during. Yeah, I was still a seminarian. Mm. In fact, I was. I was. I remember being sent to Darwin as like a ministry experience, and I, I still remember sitting when you sent through the itinerary. You'd first sort of mapped it out, and I sat down with a world map at a pencil and just tracked where the journey would be. Uh, so yeah, so from from right from there, I was like, I'm gonna. So did you? While Sam was walking, did you transition from being Mister Dave to Deacon Dave to Father Dave? No, I was back to Father Dave, but you became Deacon Dave when I was in the United States. I remember that. Yeah. So I was about halfway through. I was about eight, 9,000 Ks into the journey. <laughs> just just 9,000 Ks in. <laughs> Short walk. So Father Dave, at the time, Seminarian Dave, then Deacon Dave, was giving me weekly updates on both what the homily was for that week, but also doing all the background work. So in the same way that you initially had traced out where the journey was going, you then were doing that over the course of the journey. And I remember in Brazil receiving, where I began, I received an email two and a half weeks in from you saying, Sam, by now you should be experiencing culture shock. This is what it is. This is what to be careful of. And I was. The day before, I was in absolute turmoil because I was so angry with the Brazilians for their culture and for the, the what I saw as the stupid things that happened in the culture. And if you just changed this and that, then you wouldn't have these problems. And then straight away I get an email from you saying, you'd be experiencing culture shock by now and at this point, et cetera, et cetera. And I was pretty consistent in sending you the stuff after you needed to know about it. Oh, no, no, no. I remember there was one which was, it was after, but it still came in handy, which was, um, Sam, I noticed that yesterday the temperature bottomed out at minus 22 where you were walking. You're going to have to be careful now, which in of itself is a bit redundant. Obvious. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you then went on to actually give me a bit of advice. You'd done some research. This is what you need. I remember one of the things you told me was make sure you have chocolate with you because chocolate will actually help you to think straight. That burst of energy mm. will help you to think straight. And most people die in the cold because they make stupid decisions. And so, you've re- so it wasn't just at a faith level, it was very much at a practical level. So that's so much more helpful than me just sending emails that were basically piss takes. <laughs> <laughs> Which seemed, seemed all I was able to do to support you at the time. You were the comic yep. relief. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, the, yeah. So Father Dave, you were giving me really solid support. Marty and another friend, Dave Batten, were giving me comic relief emails. That was about it. Yeah, I remember the Puma story. That you blogged about, and um... actually, I'll grab that for one of the other episodes later on, because Dave did send me an email after I came. Father, I'm sorry, Puma Dave, we'll call him. Father Dave and Puma Dave. Puma Dave sent me an email about a Puma that I'd come face to face with in Venezuela, and he had also done some research, and he went to send that information to me on if I come face to face with the Puma again, this is what you should do. As it turns out, I'd done everything correctly. Anyway, hence I'm still here. But Dave couldn't actually resist writing his take in between each bit of advice. So it became the most hilarious email. Um, and an abridged version of that email is in the book of The Walk Around the World. Um, you can buy my book. You can listen to Father Dave's homilies on Cradio. And Marty, people can get in touch with you if they have a billion-dollar mine. Anything less, don't bother knocking. Yeah, pretty much. The walk around the world was between 2006 and 2008. Uh, I nearly lost my life 11 times while walking 15,500 kilometres and praying for the unity of the church in truth and in love. Initially, I did a lot of research. I wanted to basically evangelise as I went and to evangelise into truth. But I realised all that was going to do was create arguments where you needed to almost walk with people over a long period of time and that's what, not what I was there to do. And I felt that God asked me just to pray and invite people to pray. So it was going to be kept very simple. Um, so set out in December 2006 and finished in Spain, 15,500 kilometres later in July 2008. Uh, over a decade later, I'm still... I guess, unpacking the lessons from the walk around the world. And that's what we're going to do over the the course of the Sons of Thunder podcast is unpack some of those lessons because you two guys were there on the journey as well, just not walking it. But And you've been in part of the journey both before the walk and after the walk as well. We're just 
you guys are on the public face of it now with this podcast. Now, we're going to begin in this first one just by looking at unity itself, what that is, what that is not. Um, can I begin with you, Father Dave? What do you see as the... So that's the preamble over? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Correct, yeah. Okay. yeah. You're done with that? Yeah. Nice. Is that happy? Yeah. Do I need to explain anything else? <laughs> yep. No, no, I think you um, think your voice sounds really good. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> How are we doing for time? What are we? Thanks. Uh, 28. Okay. Perfect. <clears throat> so, Father Dave, I'm going to begin with you. Regarding unity, what do you feel are the, the greatest obstacles we face, but also the greatest opportunities we face regarding unity? What is unity? Actually, this is one of the big questions. So I'm going to change my question to you. One of the big questions I'm often asked when I'm doing recall, speaking... Recall, recall. When I'm doing speaking engagements is, but what is unity? How do you define unity? As though we can't even agree on what unity is. What is it? So it kind of presumes a lot. Like if we're talking unity amongst Christians... We're kind of presuming the fact that God had an intention to create basically a family, that everyone was under the same sort of worldview, the same sort of vision, and heading towards the same mission, same goal. Um, so so that, that's the presumption in the background, that Christ has created a unity, you know, of a but family. But that's a, that's a fairly solid presumption, isn't it? I mean... Well, you know, yeah, back you, into the gospels. You would or, hope so, yeah. I mean, he, he, as you said, you quoted John seventeen eschatological, before. Eschatological deep discourses, etc. Marty's just going to throw a few words every now and then, just so he sounds. <laughs> I've got to write the second time. <laughs> <laughs> we'll explain what the word esch- eschatology means later on. It depends on I was hoping you would actually. <laughs> anyway, back to the question. So, I'm about what is unity? So, so if we presume that Christ has tried to create a church. That, and we can go into explain what the church is some other time, but you know, we are actually episode six. Okay, well, I'll save it for then. Then, um, <laughs> you know, that that this body or that we call the church was actually quite essential in terms of the the, the grand scheme of things. Um, quick summary: that if if at the beginning of the story in the Bible in the Garden of Eden, that's kind of where division came in. So when sin came into the world, that that original family of Adam and Eve and their kids quickly degraded pretty quickly, you know, so their kids start killing each other. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, and so pretty much from there, humanity... Yeah, that really, that really escalates far. <laughs> yeah, spiral of violence. Um, from that point... Can we interject here for one second? Yeah. This is one of the things that comes up in schools a lot. I use it a bit in, in uh, professional development with teachers, is that we grow up thinking that Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden for eating an apple. And yet... It, there's no apple. It never says apple. And I've, I've learned recently that that was a Renaissance painting mm. because the word apple, malum, in Latin, is the same for evil, malum. Mm. So when the when the artist yeah. when the artist paints is that what it is in Italian, mm. male. So when the painter painter painted Adam and Eve picking an apple, everyone at the time would go, ah, they're choosing evil. Oh, but Adam and Eve didn't speak Latin. <laughs> <laughs> and they What's didn't have golden deliciousness. <laughs> so anyway, getting back to the question, <laughs> the, what, what you see from that story is division. So from that point on, humanity becomes divided across lines, you know, race, nation, sporting team, and so on. Um, I don't know whether they had sporting teams in the Garden of Eden, but um, everyone kind of gets along by hating somebody else, you know, and, and you get this situation where the only reason we actually get to live well is because we're united in our hatred against them. Mm. That's pretty much the way human history's played out. So we probably sort of do that better than ever now. Oh, yeah, if we get to social media. Really? Yeah. In, in, Amped in, it up. In Mexico, so I caught, someone's held at gunpoint three times on the walk, for, not, and they're all racial motivation. But once I got to Mexico, what do you want to say, Marty? So you got that look on your face. It's not a competition, okay? <laughs> you were held up three times at gunpoint, all right? <laughs> when I got to Mexico, the racial abuse went through the roof. And I thought, I've already been held at gunpoint three times and the racial abuse was less than this. I need to curb this somehow. And so I went and bought a Mexican soccer shirt and it changed everything. Mm. All of a sudden, people were standing up and screaming at me and I thought, they're about to start yelling violent words at me. They get my attention and then just yell, Guadalajara Chivas, which was the name, which was the sporting team that I was wearing. Yeah. I was their best friend. You became part of their they tribe. They loved me. Yeah. 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 
Until that, take it off. Want to kill me again? Despite, <laughs> despite being a six foot five white guy, that if you when weren't wearing that shirt, there's no way you'd fit in. Washing day was very dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> so the family's broken. Well, so that that's where division comes in. So you so see, you can't understand unity without understanding division. In a sense, Christ creates the church as a way of trying to heal that original brokenness, and so this. This is part of why St. Paul talks about the church as being the thing that crosses over all those lines of division. You know, so he says in one of his letters, you know, there's now no male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. He's trying to say, like, like Christ has now created a family united, which which goes across all of those divisions. Um, so now, if that's the intention of the church, the division still is there. People are constantly trying to present their church as being the true church and everyone else being wrong. Um, so that there is something in the human heart which is, I don't know, like that, that, that division or that it still lingers in us. Like even though we call ourselves Christians, the effects of that original brokenness in the Garden of Eden are still here with us. Um, but the interesting thing is that, that a lot of the time it's because they're actually trying to be the best Christians. You know, so if you look at all the great divisions that have happened down through history in, in Christianity, it's because everyone's been competing about who's the best Christian and who's the worst Christian. And so it actually comes out of a desire, this real sort of enthusiasm for holiness, which inevitably means that we're more Christian than you are. And so therefore you're not as worthy of the title of being a Christian as we are. Mm. And if you look, if you look, look pretty much at every different group in the church, that's how they started. And then the opposite of that, though, because I can hear all of a sudden the other end, you, you swing the pendulum back the other way where people would say, well, we need to stop the competition and just accept every Christian as they are and every belief they have. But then that creates some other issues. Yeah, but isn't that about like starting points, not ending points? Like that, you know, you've got to accept people where they are, but that's not the end of the journey. Mm. I give the example. The example is the Irish story about the dude in the tourist in regional Ireland who asks the farmer, "Is this the right road to get to Dublin?" And the farmer says, "If I was going to Dublin, I wouldn't start from here." <laughs> Best advice ever. <laughs> so you got to, you know, you got to start where you are. That's and then and and the church. Well, and Jesus comes to you where you are and the church should be meeting you and the people within the church where you are but that's not that's not the end that's not that's not the end game that's the start it's funny i had something to throw in here but i love the fact that i can actually begin this story by saying when i was held at knife point <laughs> in costa rica i ended up with a radio interview in melbourne with the the christian radio station down there um i think it was life fm or whatever it is in melbourne at the end of the interview the the interviewer said to me, yes, well, in the end, I guess we're all just believers in Jesus and that's all that matters. And I said, yes, and the interview finished. And as soon as I'd hung up the phone, I thought, no, no, that's not all that matters in the end. That is the beginning point. Yes, it's important, but it's, it's not... It's really important. That's our beginning point. It's not the end point. It's not in the end, that's all that matters. In the beginning, that's something that's integral and therefore there is a responsibility on us, if I can put it that way, to actually work towards complete unity. The fact that we are a family. Mm. So that, that, it's going to hurt. But doesn't that, doesn't that, like that, to me that um, the illustration is, you know, is this all that matters? Yeah, yeah, that, that is important and that, that is a good starting point. But if you accept, if you accept Jesus and if you accept Jesus's teachings, why would you not want to be part of the church the way that he wants you to be rather than the way you'd like to redesign it to suit you? So we're all teenagers? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> How is family life, Marty? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, big shout out to Marty's kids if you're listening. I uh, hope you're doing well. One of them is my godson. Um, I'm praying for you. <clears throat> Hope you're doing well. Thank you, Sam. 
How are your kids, Father Dave? You're in charge. You're the formator, is that your? Well, yeah. Father? So they're currently training guys who are in their, in their initial training to become priests and brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've got, I think, eleven guys. How long have you been doing that for? This is my eighth year. And is this your final? Oh, this is probably my last year in the job for, that, for, for, this for this particular, particular mission? stint. Yep. Yep. And then heading off to other mission fields after this. So you get to wave them goodbye this time. Yeah, pretty much. Sorry, other way around. They get to wave you goodbye. It'd be mutual. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Can we look at what some of the... Sorry, could I just... Sure. I just want to clarify. My kids are awesome. (laughs) (laughs) They're challenging at times. Yeah. But they're wonderful. Oh, no, I've stayed with you enough to know that they... They're wonderful, You're all independent. Headstrong, nobody backs down, ever. They're like you. And I think those qualities, you know, when they're adults, will be really beneficial for themselves <laughs> and the world around them. That's it. Is you have you have a lot of independent adults living in the same house. It's just some of them aren't actually adults yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and can I just bring that in? Like, if, if we're talking about unity in the church and the various divisions in the church, I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by history. That if you actually sit down and look at the history, most of it's about personality. Like we we now look at the divisions and see it all being about theology and doctrines and this sort of stuff but when you actually get into it so much of it's about very headstrong people who just didn't get along with it with another headstrong person mm. and that's where the communication breaks down and that's when they start to misinterpret things and pretty much that's where the divisions began over time they then start to harden themselves into different camps of theology but that's that's pretty much like the church is a family uh, often very dysfunctional so that pretty much describes my work life over my whole career. What <laughs> <laughs> reminds me of St. Nicholas, mm. who I think we've degraded so much through this whole... Fat man in a red uh, suit. Oh, gee. When you look at who St. Nicholas actually ho, was... Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> slap. <laughs> so, yeah, St. Nicholas, who was famous for giving presents to people in need, but also punching heretics. Yep. <laughs> He slapped so yeah. The secular media doesn't really pick up on that bit, does it? <laughs> I'm sure there's a few grumpy Santa Clauses on Boxing oh. Day, but anyway. <laughs> was it Arius? Arius got a yeah, Saint so, Nicholas so, so, slap in the early church. There was a particular guy, this guy Arius, who was famous for creating one of the biggest heresies that nearly destroyed the Catholic Church. And at one of the church councils, where he had to present his position, and which was. Nicaea, Complicated. Um, oh. Let's put it that way. It was it was a whole idea about who is Jesus. Is Jesus actually human and divine? We'd take about half an hour to explain the, doc, the theology in depth. But anyway, Nicholas was sitting across the other side of the room hearing this explanation, and he was getting so angry because of what this guy was saying about Jesus that he supposedly walked across the room and punched him. <laughs> but Caesar was at the meeting. At the council. Oh, yeah, the emperors were. Emperor, the, the emperor, emperors generally emperor. called the councils. Constantine. Was that Constantine or was that? Uh, I forget what year that was. It was council of Nicaea, though. Mm. Yeah. Hence, we got the Nicene Creed. Yes. As a result Thanks of it. Thanks to St. Nicholas's uh, right hook. hard stand. <laughs> Uncompromising. <laughs> I'm sure there are other things they did to try to defend the faith, but it was a, it was a moment of passion. He was uh, could not necessarily control his emotions. But he was arrested. He was removed. His bishop's clothing was removed. He was thrown in prison, and the next morning they came back to release him. I only read this a few months ago. And uh, when they came to release him, he was standing in his cell with all his bishop's gear on. And they asked him, "Where did you get that from?" And he said, "Our Lord and Our Lady appeared to me last night, and asked me, why are you in prison?'" And I responded, "For being overzealous for you." And they gave me back my clothing. And they let him out and, and he went back. Readmitted to the council. <laughs> <laughs> and won the day. So that's the Arian heresy, which is that Jesus is not God. Is that, is that, is that the Arian heresy? It's removing the divinity. So, so it, it basically says that Jesus is like a lesser God. So it's almost like God the Father is, is the big guy. And Jesus is somehow created by the Father. And he's sort of divine, but not as divine as the Father. Uh, okay, so, so pretty it was, much polytheism. <laughs> well, it was it was trying to take a very simplistic idea that if Jesus is the Son of God, that means he must have been born at some time. So he must have been created. Um, 
which once, once again, a lot of these different heresies and divisions come from a very simplistic interpretation of church teaching. Um, whereas if you actually go into it, when they say Son of God, it actually means a whole different thing altogether. Yeah. It, it, it's, a, it's a much, it, it comes from somewhere. It, it meant something originally. Mm. We then sort of impose a different meaning upon it. So I hear something else in schools these days, which is maybe a step beyond Arian heresy. I always thought it was Arian heresy, but it might be a bit beyond that, which is that Jesus was just a man who points us to God. So it's denying flatly any mm. divinity. What's that? Well, so th this is where the early church was filled with so many different heresies. Like uh, to, to try and list them all off would just give you a theological headache. So and and all of it was wrestling with this idea but of what are the big ones. <laughs> <laughs> so so the basic idea is we, we would say that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Yeah. Now that doesn't make sense to our little puny little brains. Like how because God is infinite, humanity is finite. God is all powerful, human human beings are weak. Like like how can you actually have these two extremes put together into one person? And so what you see over pretty much the three hundreds four hundreds in in early church history. You've got people swinging wildly back and forth. So, so at one point they say he's fully divine and he's just pretending to be human. And then other times they say he's fully human and he's just a nice guy. You know, he's not really divine. And other times they came out with like, okay, maybe he was like a like fully divine, but he was just like a ghost appearing amongst us in the form mm. of humanity. Um, but then you start to get in complicated things around what they call like the, the natures of Christ. You know, does he have two natures being divine and human? Does he just have one? And so you've got Nestorianism and Monophysitism. Nestorianism, that's the one I was trying to think of. There, 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 what, what's that? Like, <laughs> no, but broad term. Like, <laughs> well, see, this is where it's kind of dangerous because... Broad very, the priest. Well, because very often the, the common definition of the heresy is actually got very little to do with what the original guy said it was. And, and Nestorianism is a classic example of that, where if you actually go back to what Nestorius said, it's actually a whole lot more nuanced than what became known as the classical Nestorian heresy. Now, the fascinating thing is that the Nestorians actually continued on, even up to our sort of modern world. I think there are still Nestorians in China. Um, what is it? So, so the Nestorian heresy, it, it, it's kind of hard to explain because it's complicated theology and most people these days... Do it, do it. Say, oh, I've got to try to explain. But most people these days have got to say, what's, what's do the it. Do it now. <laughs> Basically, we would say, okay, Jesus has got you know, human nature and divine nature. There was all these heresies around which one you know, is, is bigger than the other. You know, are they both together? Now, Nestorius was kind of saying that somehow his divine nature, hey, this, is, this is a complicated point because it, it gets into issues around personhood and, and you know, um, <laughs> personhood and will. So, so this is, trying to explain the Nestorian heresy is too complicated. Like, <laughs> okay, well, let's stick with Arianism. Yeah. So when the Mongols were taking over China, they the Nestorians were basically evangelizing the Mongols. Um, and so when the Catholic Church sent delegates to was it Kublai Khan they went to, they yeah, they, they came across all these Nestorian priests. Um, but then recently they signed some joint declarations with both the Nestorians and the Monophysites to say sorry the what. The monophysitism. <laughs> this is the reaction to Nestorianism. Sorry, I'm from a which, farm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so this is why. Let's not talk about this to, to young people. Um, they actually signed joint declarations to say, in the beginning, we're actually all saying the same stuff. Like, So we've been okay. divided for you know, one and a half thousand years, and it was actually just a problem of language. Okay, and what is... I'm going to flip to another one here. What's Gnosticism? Which, by the way... Spelt with a G. Gnosis. Gnost. Is it, and I said it at the start because I wanted to bring this up, is Gnosticism in any way related to gnocchi? They both have a G at the front, then an E. G and an N. And an N. G and an N. So yeah. actually, no. There's uh, no E in gnocchi. Oh, sorry, not E. Yeah, G-N-O. In fact, there's no E in Gnosticism. Do, does gnocchi and Gnosticism, Gnosticism, <laughs> Gnosticism have the same root Latin word? No. Clearly. It's exactly the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> from my very, very poor understanding of the worship gnocchi, of gnocchi, it comes from, I think it's an Italian word meaning not. Gnocchi is awesome. 
Not gnocchi. <laughs> I need to eat more of it so I get better acquainted. But yes, yeah, so, 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 so Gnosticism has nothing to do with pasta, you know, potato forms of any shape or form. Um, it comes from the word knowledge. So Gnosticism is a fascinating little thing because it's almost like a religious parasite, if you could explain it this way, right. in that it took, upon the, took on the form of every other religion around itself. Um, so it was like the basic idea is like there's some sort of secret knowledge that only the, the elect can discover. Um, and so it infiltrated Judaism, it infiltrated Christianity, I think it even infiltrated Islam at some points. Um, but the whole idea is sort of like you can sort of gain this elevated knowledge and somehow you'll be saved by it, um, as opposed to you're going to be saved by having a Jesus Christ as your saviour. And cross-section. Cross-section on the cross, yes. Yeah. So um, how did it play out within the Catholic Church? Well, you, you, you actually see this in some of St. Paul's letters where he he warns people against the secret knowledge you know that people would call wisdom um so it was clearly floating around pretty early on um yeah. now pope francis actually recently put out a document guarding warning the church against neo-gnosticism um which is once again this idea where if we just have the right way of thinking then we'll be saved and so he was referring a lot to sort of a lot of the modern psychology where if we can just think ourselves properly, then that's all we need to become perfect human beings. Whereas really, we need to recognize that that sin and that brokenness goes pretty deep um, and we actually need someone to save us. Marty, hedonism. Hedonism is um, the pursuit of pleasure, isn't it? Above all else? Is that is that right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Nice. You've had Ooh. some pretty choice words to say about hedonism well, in the past. Well, yeah, I just, you know, in the age of outrage where everyone has an opinion and, you know, it's get across the, whatever, social media and internet and stuff. And I, I mean, I don't really um, read any of that because, like, my life's too short to waste time on it. But fundamentally, I think, you know, people sitting on their couches watching Netflix are dissatisfied with something why do we care the hedonists don't like it who gives a <laughs> i prefer to not have to bleep you out every second <laughs> how does hedonism affect the family as in, i'm talking about the church family well, in, in the scriptures, there, it talks a bit about this. Like, like there's, it's got this line where it says, you know, let, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Mm. And, and, and this is where they're saying that that's the way most of the pagans were thinking. Like life is meaningless. You're just going to end up as food for worms. So we may as well enjoy every moment we've got. Now, it's dangerous because it's a fundamentally selfish worldview um, that you're never going to love someone to the point where it costs you. So love becomes a social contract. You're only going to give what you're going to get back in return. Um, very different to the Christian idea of love, which is love your enemies, love until it hurts. Mm. Um, you know, that, that's a heroic action we see in the lives of the saints. And then keep loving. Keep loving, yeah. Mm. Um, and so how does it damage the church? Well, it basically turns Christianity into a lifestyle choice where... Jesus now works for me to make my life even more awesome than it already is. That God is a genie. Yeah, or God is Santa Claus. Yeah, God, he's just, he just exists to give me presents. Um, as opposed to a real love relationship where I'm going to follow and serve and devote my life to, to actually know God uh, rather than just asking God for stuff. This is a big reason why... Pick up your cross and follow me. Yes. Which I've started bringing into some of my speaking engagements now in schools with students, even though a lot of the students don't necessarily believe in God, is that that is something I think that we we do have this idea that that God should bless me with what I want, and if I don't get what I want, is that the prosperity gospel? Yeah, which is not which is not really a gospel, but no, <laughs> just saying. This is a big part of why the walk around the world worked. And I've thought about this a lot. Why does walking work? I had tried to invite so many people to pray for complete unity before the walk around the world, and it always fell flat. In fact, a Protestant minister in Melbourne accused me of not being Christian because I was praying for unity. 
They just couldn't get people to pray for unity. The walk worked. And I've often contemplated why. Why does walking work? Why does rocking up on someone's doorstep with bleeding feet, having covered 50 kilometers that day, having nearly died 11 times leading up to that point, why does that work? Why do people take on the prayer for unity? And my conclusion has been because what it does is put unity and the need for it as something worth fighting for, not as a nice option. And that is a bit jolting for some people. And that actually encouraged them to pray for unity. Maybe there is something deeper to this. There's something uh, more significant, a reason for it to go from there. Uh, the other one I had written down here was Albigensianism. Oh, I've got a joke about that. Go for it. So uh, after that, you can tell us what Albigensianism is. But I do know that St. Dominic... Um, like um, started the Order of the Dominicans back a thousand years ago or something to combat the heresy of Albigensianism. And then um, like uh, years later, 400 years later or something, St. Ignatius of Loyola started the Jesuits to combat the um, heresy of Protestantism. And have you seen any Albigensians lately? <laughs> <laughs> Well, strangely, <laughs> so let me explain. So, so Albigensianism <laughs> is a, uh, it, once again, it's a bit of an ancient heresy that keeps re-emerging every few generations. The basic idea is that there are sort of these two great forces in the universe of good and evil, uh, but they, those two forces are equal. And so taken to its extreme, it's this idea... Taken to its extreme, you've got Star Wars. Well, yeah... <laughs> the, the basic basic idea is that, that God created the world of spirit, which is pure and lovely and wonderful, and the devil created the world of matter, which is corrupt and leads us to sin. And so, once again, it sort of takes this Christian idea of the spirit and the flesh to a bad interpretation and kind of to an extreme interpretation. It really elevates the um, you know concept of the power of the devil way beyond. Exactly. Yeah. The, the, what the, is actually the, capable. The devil now mm. becomes on an equal level as God. Mm. Um, so you go back to, you know, like 400s, 500s AD, and you've got St. Augustine, who was part of a group called the Manichees. I'm probably pronouncing that all completely incorrectly, but they were basically having the same idea, you know, um, this dualistic idea of good and evil. Um, it sort of died for a few hundred years and then re-emerged in the form of Albigensianism. Um, now, it's, it's a dangerous idea taken to its extreme because for the most faithful followers of Albigensianism, uh, the, the way to be the most devout was to commit suicide because Ooh. you want to release your soul from your body because your body is the source of all evil. Uh, so it's a pretty screwed up sort of religion. Um, <laughs> it doesn't appear to be a like a self-sustaining kind of religion if if, if you've got particularly devout. Well, but, but the, the bizarre thing was it was growing rapidly because they took it so seriously, and they lived this extremely ascetical lifestyle, you know, fasting, self-denial. Whereas at the time, the Catholic Church was very wealthy and opulent, and so people were like, well, Catholic Church isn't believing what they say they believe, whereas these guys do. And so people followed it because mm. of sincerity. And so this is where St. Dominic came in and he said, well, we actually need to live the gospel if we're ever going to have a, have a way of influencing these people. So he didn't want any of the wealth, any of the ceremony, because he was like a papal legate or something. It was, it was delegated by the Pope to go and, on mission. And so he should have had all these carriages and servants. And he decided to walk barefoot instead. How far did he walk, Sam? St. Dominic? Yeah. I have no idea. Didn't get to Brazil, did he? But I think so. Just checking. <laughs> I forget the figures, but I read it some years ago. He actually walked a long way over the space of his lifetime. You should check him out. Um, so <laughs> he, 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 I think someone actually tried to work out how far he had journeyed in all of his preaching endeavours. I think that'd be a really good comparison, Sam. You finally, finally might have, you know. Well, hang on. I'm, I'm Googling it right now. St. Dominic. Um... How far did he walk? I forget where I read it, but it was somewhere. Someone had worked something of this out. What are you on? Are you on the wiki page? 
No, I'm on a Dominican page. Right. Yeah. I'm, going, I'm going to the wiki page. <laughs> it's a timeline. I'm interested because <laughs> up until this moment, Sam's walked further than anyone else I've ever met or know. Well, St. Francis Saviour, did he walk or did he boat it and horse it? He was mostly boating. Okay. Yeah. But he, he, he travelled a fair way. There is a guy who I know has walked double to triple what I did. And he's still alive. So oh, okay. he's, he's walked around the world carrying a cross. Yeah. I've heard that guy. Yeah. yeah. But no, I don't, I don't hold any records. I might have some speed records for, you know. <laughs> biggest distances in one day. Big, biggest, well, no, I don't even hold that. But maybe biggest distance over two weeks. Maybe, maybe yeah. I can get that. Biggest puma. Biggest, yeah. Well, it was crouched down low in the grass, so I don't know. You're still, um, I you... saw a huge anteater. Still want to see a photo of the puma. <laughs> was it you that sent me the... Yeah. So, folks, <laughs> I came face to face with a puma in South America in the middle of the night, and we had a standoff. For Allegedly. And Marty sends me an email afterwards and says, do you have a photograph? If you don't, it didn't happen. Just saying. Father Dave, though, thank you for your help over the course of the journey. <laughs> I believed you. And look, we've touched on some of the the problems that we face in being united completely in truth. We haven't really even gone into into unity and love and how difficult that is. I know that does come into some of these heresies that we spoke about here, but unity and love in itself is just phenomenally difficult because we can agree and still not have a loving family and still persecute each other for things outside the gospel to a sense and be judgmental and which is awkward because we say that these days and student you hear students say oh, we don't we shouldn't judge we need to be able to judge and to judge well is to have wisdom but to not judge in a particular way <laughs> but to love one another the, 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 and, and this look i'm going to finish with this for this particular episode uh, in Panama, in South America, a Central America. Sorry, 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 stop. Panamanians. This is getting worse. That crackle. Can you both move your? Actually, one at a time. One at a time. You go. You go. It's yours. It's your side. Oh yeah. Oh, that stopped it. It was your mic. Okay, we've got really bad static then on your recording. Mm. That fixed it. That's awful. I'm glad it's fixed it. It's 20 minutes worth, though. First 20 minutes was better. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to wrap up here. We, we've only really spoken about unity in truth to an extent. There's a whole overarching unity in love issue in how do we actually overcome these heresies, uh, but how do we love one another outside those heresies even? We can, we can get people to, to agree. We can be all in the same church community and still not have complete unity because we're not loving one another. We're not laying our life down for one another. We don't want to sacrifice for each other. We are a little bit like the disciples. Jesus, how many times? Our Lord, how many times should we forgive our brother? Um, and we don't want to keep forgiving, etc. Uh, in Panama, a young man, 24 years of age, invited me to stay in his little tin shed home when no one else would even talk to me. They were telling me to get lost. I was a white guy, I wasn't welcome. And that night he went door knocking for me to find me dinner. He found half a bread roll for me. The next morning I found out that was the only food he'd found for all of them. He, his wife and his daughter. So they had given me the half bread roll to have for dinner. They went without so that I could eat and continue walking the next day. And the next morning while having breakfast, which is another bread roll that he'd managed to find up in the village, uh, he confessed that the very next day he was leaving his wife and daughter to go and find work 200 kilometres away and he was going to send money home on the bus to his wife and daughter so that they could buy food and they could eat. And he has given me his daughter's Dino doll with her little, with his thumb rosary over the top of Dino's head around his neck. Uh, and Dino travels with me everywhere and it has remained as one of the greatest examples that I've seen of someone sacrificing for those around them, both for me that night, but then for his family as well, for his wife and his daughter. He was sacrificing himself. And 
the one thing I did take out of the walk around the world was very much so that we are at our best when we sacrifice for each other. Father Dave, you were saying earlier on that it was a lot of the division has been a battle of personalities. I think we're at our best when we... Nodding doesn't help when you're on a podcast. I'm letting you monologue. Keep we, going. We are at our very best when we sacrifice for each other, when we don't try to necessarily push ourselves on each other, even if we know we are right. <laughs> Marty? Your voice sounds so good. <laughs> uh, and so we are going to wrap up this podcast in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we hand over to you all that we are, and we pray, Lord, that you would continue to lead us into truth and into love and into the family that you have invited us to be a part of, that you have created for us. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us to walk with wisdom and to be attentive to your Holy Spirit. And Mother Mary, we pray that you would continue to intercede for us. Father Dave, may we ask for your blessing, please. Pray a blessing for us sitting here around this table and for anyone else listening. Lord, we just pray a blessing upon us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.